Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and it's Wednesday, October 12th, 2022. And today we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the past seven days. Uh, today is going to be a day filled with a lot of stories about social media and about uh, digital uh, connections with students and how relevant those are in uh, the student life cycle, both from prospect to enrolled student, but also into uh, graduate and successful alumni status. And there are a couple of different takes on this that we'll look at today uh, related to work, uh, related to outcomes, related to jobs, uh, related to costs financing, all of that wonderful things. But before we get into the questions today, I do want to obviously say hello to all of those of you who are watching live online on our social media channels for SMIE Consulting, whether on our Facebook page, our YouTube channel, Twitter account, or on my LinkedIn profile for Marty Bennett. So we appreciate you being a part of the conversation this week. Uh, and if you have contributions along the way, feel free to let me know and we'll be sure to get uh, your feedback in. Uh, included in our live chat today. Uh, what, like we do each week, uh, we take our news stories, uh, the themes that, that form, the questions that we cover each week from our newsletter that comes out on Mondays, Mondays on at about 9 a.m. Eastern. And we publish those on our SMIE Consulting website. Uh, there's an archive of all previous editions. Uh, just put the link up to the smieconsulting.org slash subscribe site, where you'll be able to find uh, the archive of all past editions. I'm also going to put the link in the chat to our most recent edition of the newsletter that you can subscribe to on that SMIE Consulting site, as well as our LinkedIn version of the newsletter. So if you gather your uh, international ed news stories on LinkedIn each day, uh, you can get that on Mondays if you subscribe to the newsletter. It comes around 8.30, 9 o'clock every Monday morning, Eastern Time. Uh, if you prefer to uh, get just an email inbox in your inbox every Monday, uh, sign up through our website. Uh, we'll, we'll be happy to have you join the SMIE Consulting family and do that. You can do that for free uh, using the website or the LinkedIn link there. Now, what we'll cover today first is a question that has a lot of relevance for international educators in particularly in the post-pandemic world, but even before we certainly knew digital was coming and uh, the kinds of uh, uh, digital uh, ways that we can reach students has uh, has evolved dramatically in the last 10 years. Uh, we look at not only the rise of social media, but uh, web, web conferencing platforms, live chat tools, and other social media channels that allow for more video and lives uh, that can, uh, can attract a broader audience than perhaps uh, most are think would have thought possible in previous years. So uh, the question of the day related to that is, do you live where your audiences live? Now, for those of you who know me well, uh, for those of you who have been doing social media for a while and have been following us uh, in our journey at SMIE Consulting, the first part of our, our business name, SM, is Social Media and International Education Consulting. We started our business really founded on how social media is and should be the most relevant tool to help institutions connect with students overseas to bring them to the United States and not just in overseas but throughout the world because uh, that's where they live that's where they spend their time this was a, a, this was true even in the mid noughties when social media was just taking off you saw uh, huge rushes of uh, to all the social media channels initially Facebook Twitter YouTube all came from directly from 
uh, college-age students. Uh, they, Facebook was founded as a college-age uh, platform uh, for individual colleges students to connect to e with each other, uh, but it evolved into something much, much more. But where you've seen social media take off, it's always been with the youth, with the 13 to 24-year-old population demographic that has led and still drives all social media growth in most countries. So the question of are you living where your audience lives refers specifically to your institution. Are you spending the time where your prospective student audiences are spending theirs? And that, uh, as, as we've talked about, you can kind of guess, it's social media uh, is where they are spending their time. Now that's a general, obviously a very generalized answer, answer and they're very specific answers to that question when you're dealing with different countries. And we can go into those, what's happened in China, what's happened uh, in, in India, what's happened in uh, Mexico, or what, what are the most dominant platforms that their, uh, students are seeing in different countries. There will be differences. But the important thing is, do you have a presence where your students are, and then you can, from that point, you can then assess are our messages effective in reaching students on those platforms because we know we're in the right place, but then you'll take the next step, which is another conversation for another day about what some of that content has to be to reach those students most directly and most impactfully. Now, the four stories that I'm going to be sharing with you today, a couple are uh, upcoming webinars, uh, one by Keystone, one by uh, the Ambassador Platform. It's actually a white paper from the Ambassador Platform uh, that you can download, and then an upcoming Keystone webinar on uh, that covers a variety of topics such as, is Facebook really dead, and is TikTok the new place to reach students? Uh, which social media channels should your institution be choosing? So that's going to be very important in terms of uh, answering that kind of a question. Uh, that you might want to learn more about. Uh, the TAP, uh, TAP Ambassador Platform white paper deals with similar things, how student ambassadors can support your, your recruitment marketing and details of the roles uh, they can play in how to connect with Gen Z and the importance of user-generated content. So that's what's in the TAP news, uh, white paper. Uh, the other uh, important resource uh, is from a webinar from this past week from Unibuddy and IDP Connect called Meeting Student Needs at the Top of the Funnel. And it goes into a very broad-based uh, overview of Gen Z, who they are, uh, and who Gen Z are, are going to be the people we're recruiting for the next 10 years uh, in international admissions. So uh, this is uh, how they live and learn online is how you need to become familiar with if you want to successfully recruit them in, as inst into your institutions. Now, top uh, those who didn't attend the webinar, uh, uh, prize for the, who can guess who the four, the four countries with the highest Gen Z populations are from the webinar that came out, uh, Nigeria, Pakistan, India, and Indonesia, uh, countries that have the highest Gen Z populations in the world. And those are all uh, probably on your list or should be on your list of where you're receiving uh, quality uh, applicants uh, from and how you get to them. Uh, why is uh, Gen Z important? Uh, outside of India, where you can't use TikTok, 40% of Gen Z students are spending more than three hours a day on TikTok. Three hours a day. I mean, I'm embarrassed I spend about a half hour a day, but th four, three hours on TikTok. Uh, social media is now the second most popular way for students to search for information about colleges and universities. Digital is a way to reach them. So uh, even at that top of the funnel where your, your, your first impression of, uh, that students have of your institution can be shaped in large ways by what they see of your content, either your content that you're putting out or 
your students, uh, particularly student ambassadors or student uh, employees that you have working for you that are engaging in social media on behalf of your institution. Those are the things that will resonate when they can, yeah, that's your first impression that you have with those students. So the question is, are, is that the next step is, is that, is that, is your content designed to meet them where they are? Uh, some of the tips that, they, that this, uh, this uh, webinar uh, document, uh, you'll, you'll get the, uh, the link to the actual presentation in, uh, in the chat. It says, Gen Z students want instant gratification, access to immediate information. They can see through your mass marketing efforts and they're intolerant of gener generic messages, messages, spam email, or mass comms. So how do you make yourself stand out? You personalize your messages. You're on the right platforms that they're on. Uh, that it's just a, just a wealth of information in this presentation. So I strongly urge you to, to check it out. And each of those three resources will have some value for you, I'm sure, as you knit together the pieces of what will be a hopefully a comprehensive digital outreach strategy that helps you define and identify where your audience spends their time and then where you should have a presence and then next steps what how that how your messages should be conveyed what messages should be conveyed to your prospective student audiences last piece of this uh, this pro this question uh, in terms of living where your audiences live are you doing that uh, that is a survey of college admissions folks uh, that was conducted recently uh, that uh, seems to suggest uh, that we're looking at a, a recent survey that was done that helped uh, by Mongoose uh, that took a look at where institutions have been shifting their attention. And this is more, uh, more generically, not just internationally, but uh, in a recent survey of 150 university admissions leaders, 70% were switching more into social media, elevating social media, 67% were elevating text and SMS messaging, and 63% were enhancing their email marketing. And this, a lot of this is post is uh, reacting to the pandemic and a lot of the, uh, the outreach that has proven effective, most effective. Uh, but one of the challenges, and this is something that you, you, uh, we all deal with in, in university life, is uh, de de uh, showing ROI for what we do and the challenges with connecting dots in uh, our CRMs to the contacts we make with students on social. The, the, the data connections aren't always very seamless, aren't seamless at all in many cases, that there aren't even ways to do that uh, easily in terms of uh, connections you make with students through different platforms like from your Insta, Insta Lives or your or Reels on Facebook or your YouTube Shorts or your TikToks if you're going that way now. Uh, a lot of that is hard to transmit into uh, ROI, ad spend and all that type of thing in terms of directing students to who actually enroll. It's hard to, hard to nail that down and that will continue to be the challenge in the CRM that can solve that that nut uh, first uh, will certainly come out uh, of the game uh, quite well, I'm sure. But uh, one of the things that the, this uh, Inside Higher Ed article that discusses this Mongoose survey uh, talks about is, in particular, SMS mess text messaging with uh, prospective students. And one case in particular at the University of Akron this summer uh, had an enhanced text messaging program that helped cut uh, their summer melt. And that was, a, was seen as a very uh, easy uh, way to, uh, to help reach students in on, on platforms that they're using, but also in 
in a way that allowed them for them to engage without having to go into a huge conversation about a topic. It was simply a thumbs up, thumbs down emoji response to are you still planning to enroll? Uh, are you still planning to come to campus this fall? So that allowed the, the institution to make a personalized approach to the individual students who uh, hadn't yet deposited or uh, just to confirm with deposited students that they were still planning to come. Uh, that really matters, and uh, that that frequent testing, they this institution, University of Akron, uh, as one of their staff said, we could continue to build the relationship and check in with the new class more often and in a more direct way than through email, which often slips through the cracks. Uh, certainly, certainly makes a lot of sense in that respect. So the whole identity of um, understanding your, your prospective student market uh, has to begin and end with understanding where they spend their time. Uh, and once you have that first, lock that in, then you can begin to drill down into messaging, until timing, until uh, frequency, and all of the other factors that go into effective uh, messaging components. Uh, we'll talk next week, I think, about um, uh, A-B testing. There's a new article up uh, from Inted that will uh, probably reference some of these next steps, this next second or third level down kind of approach to refining your marketing approach, your messaging to specific students. So we'll talk about that in the future too, but we do want to spend time on a related subject. And the, when we talked about content earlier, you've established you're on the right platforms, you've got the right perspective, you're personalizing your approach. What is the con some of the content of those messages that you need to be including for your prospective student audiences? So the question is, how is your messaging, again, for your prospective students, uh, how is that developed related to costs and financing of, your, of an education at your institution, related to jobs that students can get while they're students, uh, and also outcomes uh, that, that, that we've talked many times over the last few months, last couple of years, about the growing importance of demonstrating outcomes to prospective students in a pandemic, uh, post-pandemic world that is currently uh, entering a, probably a global recession in the next year. How uh, tightened budgets, the soaring dollar, uh, all the other variables that are impacting costs uh, of attendance in the United States. How are you demonstrating your ROI, not for your own internal plans on how you're reaching students and enrolling them, but to future students, how are you convincing them that you can deliver, your institution can deliver on its promises to graduate successful and employable uh, students. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the real rub that is becoming ever so important for prospective students in the admissions decision that they're wanting to know more and more how a college is going to provide, what the college is going to provide them in terms of employment prospects uh, and jobs and while they're enrolled and costs and financing ability. So cost is an absolutely essential piece of the puzzle. Uh, and our cost and ROI, though they're very tightly co uh, combined, because a family that wants to has is going to have to invest $100,000, $250,000, $500,000 over the course of a of an undergraduate education, without any without any funding, they're going to want to know that they've got a pretty good bet of that they're going to have a guaranteed return at the end. That's not always the case, and uh, the challenge is for institutions to have the kind of data that will really help them understand, yes, your college can do it, can provide that job, can provide a, a, an excellent pathway to graduate programs or to employment after graduation. Whatever the case may be, whatever that student's looking for, you need to have some data. And if you don't have data, 
you have to have the, the success stories, the successful alums who've graduated from the programs that that student might want to go into. Uh, that, that, that can show, hey, a student from my country wants to study what I do, has studied what I want to study, and look at where they are now. They're working for Tesla, or they're a senior executive in Apple. Uh, whatever the case might be, you want to have those success stories that you can share with your prospective student audiences and their parents. Particularly for undergraduates, the parents have to be involved in that conversation. And when you include them you, and you have content that speaks to them in terms of their return on their investment as a family, then you are certainly meeting them uh, where they are and answering their questions. Uh, the article that I'm referencing here related to this is uh, an ICEF uh, monitor report uh, from an interstride survey that was done uh, with students in 77 countries. Putting the link to that article in the chat now. Uh, it's top level highlights of this uh, from the article uh, that students in these 77 countries want more information than they are getting currently about financing, employment opportunities, and career outcomes. That's the mo most important piece of their of, of their search. So we've uh, uh, what this. Uh, ICEF Monitor article does on top of presenting the results from Interstride. It goes into uh, uh, some quick research on top universities and found career outcomes were not as prominently placed as they should be for prospective student audiences. They probably have them somewhere on the career services page, but that's not uh, where international students, prospective international students are going to go. They want to see the ROI and, and the results and the alumni success stories, current student success stories. Uh, all of that needs to be packaged in for prospective students from the beginning. So that is uh, part of the puzzle that we don't necessarily, are, aren't necessarily doing well as institutions. And this isn't just in the U.S., it's globally. Uh, but the Sinistride survey uh, did uh, share some inf information that was particularly useful that uh, about um, the competitive advantages that you might have in terms of ROI, in terms of jobs, uh, in terms of posting extraordinary graduate employability st statistics uh, is, uh, is, is, is a, should, be a, should be, as they call it in the article, a no-brainer and should be designing a home page where, uh, where students that can ha see that information up front. Uh, so it's, it's something that if you can do that right, uh, that uh, take the next, or you're encouraging students to take the next step to develop a solution to a world problem by attending your institution. Uh, that the, this is what you can do and give practical examples of how that's happening for students who have gone to your institutions. Those stories are going to be the most, the easiest way for you to have, uh, and the quickest way probably to have the kind of answers you need to address this very important question uh, of outcomes. But also employment job, employment opportunities. Um, we'll talk more about this jobs while studying question in the last uh, question of the day. But uh, here we're talking about what can students do when they're on campus? Is it just a 20-hour a week on-campus job and that's it uh, until they qualify for potentially CPT or OPT? At least be able to explain what those are. Uh, that uh, those are the ways that students not will pay for their studies but will pay for their spending money and other uh, personal expenses that they might have uh, because you can't pay for tuition based on a 20-hour a week minimum wage job on a college campus. It's just not going to happen. Uh, so, uh, but spelling out what the possibilities are and uh, the opportunities for internships. Uh, for example, at UNLV, we have our hospitality program at the undergraduate level requires students to work 1,000 hours 
on the strip in hotels and resorts there uh, before they can graduate. So that, for an international student, is built-in CPT that they have access to and actually are required to do in order to graduate in that program. So that is a huge selling point for anyone who's coming to our hospitality program is the access to work that they're going to have before they graduate, a thousand hours of which they'll get paid for on the strip. So that is something that if you have those kinds of things, you, this, that needs to be absolutely central to your messaging. Uh, in terms of not only just the uh, student climate but in, and the academic strength of, the of your institution, but talk about the outcomes. Talk about the jobs that can help them get to their career outcomes. That is going to be the, the campuses that do that better uh, and from the beginning of the conversation with prospective students, tying, tying, tying your, their coming to your institution to their future success, that, that is, that is going to be uh, the golden ticket, if you will. When you can do that well, when you have the data, you have the success stories, and you're including that messaging in that prospective student funnel of com um, conversations you're having on those topics that are relevant to them, that meet them where they are. Uh, that's that's a, the institution that's doing that well is going to be uh, truly successful in the long run. Now, for the last question of the day, this is one that uh, is, is not, not necessarily a U.S. Uh, issue right now. Uh, and the question is, should student work hours be capped? Uh, what we think of, when we think about students in the United States, uh, as anyone who's been in international uh, student services uh, for more than a second, you know that your students can only work on campus 20 hours a week while school is in session, 40 hours a week uh, on campus during break periods, unless uh, they have... Uh, there are some exceptions. Uh, curricular practical training, um, pre-completion optional practical training, uh, and or emergency work authorization uh, because of maybe uh, special student status that they have for their countries like Ukrainian students were granted um, emergency uh, sp special student relief, SSR, uh, that would allow them to get uh, emergency work authorization uh, to work more than a certain number of hours and work off campus uh, to perhaps earn more money to allow them to help uh, continue to pay for their education. So there are very limited exceptions to this rule uh, in the United States. That's, that's kind of our baseline. Uh, 20 hours a week on campus while school is in session, 40 hours a week while during break periods on campus if, the, if such jobs exist. And then three options, uh, pre-completion CPT, pre-completion OPT, CPT, or emergency work authorization for those special student relief categories uh, for countries that have uh, gotten onto that list for various reasons over the years. So that, that's, the, that's the baseline here in the United States. Uh, the, the reason I bring this up is there are, were two countries that had uh, very different views on, on, this, uh, on this issue. Uh, Australia, which uh, up until for during the pandemic, towards the tail end of the pandemic, they uh, basically uh, removed work limit hours because in Canada, Australia, UK, students are able to work off campus 20 hours a week under normal circumstances. Uh, but uh, during the pandemic, uh, in Australia in particular, uh, there are particular fields, uh, uh, jobs, er jobs that were. Uh, were not being filled, that were in high demand, and that international students that were working in those fields uh, could get exempted from the cap uh, to, uh, to, to work more additional hours beyond that 20 off campus. Uh, so in the U.S., we're, we do limit our students to on campus, and that's perhaps a drawback uh, would be uh, 
and there are various reasons for that, but uh, the why, why they're limited to on-campus. But in Australia, UK, New Zealand, uh, Canada, you can work as an international student off-campus, but 20 hours a week. That's the normal minimum, or normal maximum, excuse me. So what, what's happened, um, Australia had had this extension of the more than 20 hours a week uh, for international students uh, to work during the pandemic because of restrictions on funding and all that type of thing. And, and there were jobs that were in high demand, so they needed students to fill them. So they had, could work more than 20 hours a week. But now, this past week, they put in a restriction uh, that's back to restricted work hours for international students. And a lot of, and frankly, there's uh, one of the articles on Australia uh, actually made the point, both of these are from the pie, uh, Australia to cap work hours for international students. Uh, Canada is the next one we'll talk about as well. But uh, that this was uh, what, it, what it meant initially when that was proposed was that students could uh, for in, in the work that industry, industry and businesses that were positively impacted by having these students available to work more hours, they're certainly uh, they're found that a, a real boom to them. Uh, but what had happened that this policy change last year in Australia that allowed the extra work uh, had a lot in the international ed community rightly concerned, and that has to do with something that's the the true reality of why they're in your country, uh, in the various countries that they study. International students come to be students. They are on a student visa or a study permit. They're not, uh, unless you're in Canada, where it's as much, there are much easier routes to go from, from student to work, and uh, actually the lines blur uh, fairly quickly uh, once students are, are begun their, their degrees there. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a minute. But uh, this, what it had done is it was taking in Australia when they had this exemption to allow them to work more than the 20 hours per week. It's stakeholders in the international community, according to the article here, found uh, it could be s s that students' focus uh, could be taken away from their studies and thereby result in lower academic performances, possibly impacting the overall quality of their university education in that country and by that count Australia's reputation as a country offering top quality higher education. So this uh, was seen, uh, had two very different views on it, uh, that uh, some international educators say a short-term problem allows the students to earn the extra money uh, as long as it doesn't negatively impact their studies, but that there weren't really those kind of internal restrictions placed as far as we know that would prevent students from working more than the 20 if their grades suffered. I mean that's uh, that's something that parents usually do. That you, if you can't, you're not going to be able to do extracurriculars. You're not be able to work if you if you can't keep your grades up. Uh, in the U.S., that might be our approach as a, in high school or middle school, but in, in for university level students, they're kind of on, they're on their own. Uh, but uh, and they're they're allowed to do what the law allows them to do. And that was certainly the case that students who needed the money could do the extra work. And that was uh, last month or this just this past week. The change is made. Uh, we're going back. We're going back to the 20-hour a week limit. We're going to get back to the point that uh, we're, we're not going to allow the extra work uh, while they're students because we want them to be successful students, not earn the extra money. The, the priorities, we don't want their priorities to be uh, confused. So uh, in terms of Australia's approach, that's what they're doing. They're going back to the 20 hours a week uh, for uh, students to be able to work off-campus jobs while they're in session. Canada, on the other hand, 
much for the same reasons that Australia did last year by expanding uh, the work hour permissions for international students is that they have uh, gone uh, basically followed suit from what Australia did a year ago not to what Australia just did this past week that Canada is now uh, this last article is Canada is lifting work hour restrictions for international students so and that's from November 15th that's when that will start and it's specifically a policy designed by the Canadian immigration minister uh, to address Canada's labor shortages as the country faces its lowest rate of unemployment on record with nearly one million job vac vacancies going unfilled. And there are many more million jobs going unfilled in the United States every year that potentially, <laughs> this could be another, uh, if you want to do some case studies on this, could be used uh, by for international students to work off campus because it's, it's, it's allowed in other Western nations to work off campus, but just we limit them here at on campus. That's another whole immigration topic for another day. Uh, but in terms of Canada, it's the, ch the quote is, this change is going to help sustain Canada's post-pandemic post growth and provide a boost to thousands of employers looking to add to their staff for the upcoming holiday season, particularly in sectors that are facing the most severe labor shortages. It's going to give many post-secondary students a great opportunity, greater opportunity to support themselves to gain work experience in Canada and in many instances actually in their field of study as well. So uh, that might be a little bit... Uh, a little bit uh, over the top uh, in their field of study as well, but uh, depending on what that field is, uh, anything could be business, right? Uh, but this is, uh, others are saying uh, from from uh, the institutional side, similar to what happened in Australia, they're starting to back off that uh, that the work, that it, need, that it needs to be a balance, that students will have choice and flexibility, which is great, but uh, the, the Assistant Vice Provost, President for Global Engagement and Partnerships at York University in Toronto said the new, new policy will give students choice and flexibility, but that work needs to be balanced with professional and personal goals. Uh, so it's, it is a balancing act, and for some students that work-life balance or study-work study balance is not one that they are uh, perhaps ready to make, some, some will. Uh, they are, this policy is going to be from November 15th of 2022 through to December 31st, 2023. So over a year worth of uh, more than 20 hours a week work. So it's uh, uh, president of C and CEO of CBIE uh, for Canada wrote on LinkedIn, this news is a welcome development for our international students. So uh, someone at the uh, kind of bigger picture level uh, in, in Canada is seeing this as a very positive one, an encouraging message for international students in Canada. So we're seeing this, uh, Canada certainly seeing this as a positive. How do you see it? How do you see work uh, in your countries as uh, in, in your, for your international students? Uh, is it weird that the U.S. is the only one that doesn't allow off-campus work while stu stu school is in session 20 hours a week? So that's, uh, that seems to be what I, what, over the years, that's the one thing I w I've been always questioning more than anything else. Why are student, international students in other countries allowed to work off campus, but not in the U.S.? So what is it, does it really matter? Uh, yes, you have a little bit more control over the situation when they're on campus students. Um, so, and no one wants to get into the weeds on uh, checking hours worked at a restaurant uh, near campus uh, to, uh, for, for international students that certainly that would help international student advisors a lot if uh, students had 20 hours a week work permission off campus 
but the, the monitoring piece is certainly something that would be the, the real challenge if and when that ever happened. I doubt it will, but that's uh, certainly there. So that may be a question for next time. Would the U.S. ever consider uh, allowing students to work off campus? Not necessarily uh, removing the cap on work hours, but allowing them to work off campus. Because we know, uh, I certainly worked uh, when I had jobs on uh, as a student, university student. That would be weeks I'd be working 30, 40 hours as a waiter. Uh, but uh, that's that's that was me. I, I'm a U.S. citizen. I had the ability to do that. Uh, International students do not have that ability now, but uh, are we negatively penalizing them as a result? Probably, but do they have, if, if there's a need, should we allow them to, a need in the community in terms of the, these jobs need to be filled, and potentially international students could do that. Uh, I would be happy with that if they were able to work off campus 20 hours a week uh, while school's in session. That would certainly uh, be a, a nice change and uh, certainly would remove a lot of headaches that I know international student advisors have whenever they walk into a neighborhood uh, restaurant uh, near campus and uh, are afraid that they're going to run into uh, current students working there. Uh, but that's that's a real challenge that you uh, you want to, there are balances, there are trade-offs in all of this. So we'll see where this conversation goes and I look forward to future talks about employment uh, for students and what that looks like on your campuses. But until then, uh, we appreciate you joining in today for the Midweek Roundup and look forward to chatting with you again. Next week, we'll be coming to you live from the AMPE conference in Chiapas, Mexico. Uh, so it's kind of the Mexican version of NAFSA, their own country's version of NAFSA, uh, bringing together international uh, partnership leaders uh, from across Mexico and uh, some from the rest of North America as well. So I'll be presenting live uh, from uh, the AMPE conference in Chiapas, Mexico next Wednesday, October 19th. So until that time, we'll see you then. Cheers.